James, that's, yeah, so great to hear your story, and thanks for sharing that with us. Um, don't worry, mine's not memorized either. Um, yeah, what Jared said is true. Um, I'm a violent leg shaker, um, and I don't, I don't think many people can make that claim that they can shake a whole apartment with just their legs. Um, but, yeah, for those of you who I don't know, uh, my name is Robert. Uh, I went to college here in Southern Colorado to UCCS, and uh, I'm in my second year of interning with Crew now. Um, something that you should know about me is I'm a big fan of Christmas. I was jamming out to the music we had playing earlier. Um, I could play Christmas music year-round, and I would have probably had Christmas decorations up on November 1st if I could. Um, I also really love looking at the Christmas lights um, that people put every, every year. Last night, my wife Hannah and I went to the Broadmoor to look at the lights, and if you haven't been yet, I would highly encourage you to, to take a break from studying for finals and to go to the Broadmoor and visit and, and see the lights that they have up. Um, it's really incredible. They, uh, we walked around the property, we saw the giant gingerbread house that they make every year, we gazed up at the pretty lights on the trees, and um, nearly every branch on the trees had a strand of lights attached. Um, one big pine tree was decorated with ornaments, and another, um, oddly enough, looked like it was fireworks. Um, that's just like the best way that I can describe it. Um, but if you were to walk around during the day, however, I think you'd have a very different experience, and probably a pretty underwhelming one. Uh, we go at night to see Christmas lights because it's the lights that we're, we're there to see. We're not there to see what's underneath of it. But, but if you were to go during the day, you'd, you'd just see a dead tree. Um, it's not quite as appealing. The, the reason that I share that is that often as people, I think that we act like a dead tree at Christmas time. Uh, we dress ourselves up with all the pretty lights of, of good works and all of the right actions, often looking for the approval or the praise of those around us or passing by. Some of us compete with the other dead trees around us, and, um, and we, we uh, compete to see who has the best adornments. It creates this illusion both to, to those around us and also to ourselves that we're a better person than we know ourselves to be. We might be feeling as though we're not enough as we are right now, and so we end up covering it up with things like our achievements, academics, our religious devotion. Um, I could go on, but I think what, what this really comes down to is that we don't think that faith in Jesus is enough to make, to make us acceptable to God. So we add our own standard of righteousness um, or holiness onto what he's done, or we replace it with a different standard entirely. So the mark of discipleship that we're going to be talking about tonight is growth, um, and we'll be reading from Galatians chapter 2. What I hope that we'll see from this passage is that our growth in the Christian life doesn't come from what our lives look like on the outside or by adding on rules for what our conduct should be, but rather it comes from a heart that is changed by what the good news, by the good news of Jesus's payment for our sins. For those of you in this room who would call yourself a follower of Christ, I hope that you'll see the importance of continually returning to the picture of his perfect life and sacrifice for your sins, and that you would deepen your love for your Savior, and that you would return to him again and again. Understanding your full acceptance before God through Christ allows you to truly experience growth from the inside out. And for those of you who would not call yourself a follower of Christ, I hope that you will see that Jesus is the only one who can make you right before God, and that you would love him for the first time and let him determine your standing before God. Until this happens, though, you won't be able to experience the growth that we'll be talking about tonight. 
but rather I hope that this gives you a clearer picture of what it would mean to commit your life to Christ. What I hope will become clear to all of us tonight is that because we are united to Christ in faith, we should trust him to change us from the inside out. That because we are united to Christ by faith, we should trust him to change us from the inside out. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who seeks and saves the lost, um, the people who don't know you, that you make us righteous because we can't do it ourselves. I pray that you would teach us tonight from your word that we would trust fully in your payment for our sins. And I pray that the words that I'm speaking tonight, that they wouldn't be from myself, but Lord, that they would be from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're using the blue Bibles on your table, we're going to be at the top of page 566. Something that's helpful to know going into this passage is that everyone in the room is a Christian. Some may have been Christians for a long time, and some for a shorter time, but, but everyone present is a follower of Christ. So we'll start at verse 11 in chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Paul's letter to the Galatians addresses an issue that the church was having in regard to salvation. The circumcision party is a group of people who taught that, that in addition to faith in Christ, that someone who's not a Jew, a Gentile, um, that they had to be circumcised and that they had to follow all of the Jewish laws and customs in order to truly be a Christian. Um, here, Paul sets the scene and he gives some context for his confrontation with Peter. Um, who, Peter at this time is, uh, he was one of Jesus's disciples, but now he's a prominent figure in the early church. Before certain men came from James. These certain men were not really told who they were exactly, but, but we can assume that they're part of the circumcision party and, and maybe even that they have some influence. Before these men came, Cephas or Peter would eat with the Gentiles. And this was a regular practice for him. This doesn't simply mean just sitting at the same table as them, but, but eating with them, eating the food that they ate. And that would have been abnormal for a Jew just because of the fact that their dietary laws and restrictions would have required them to eat different foods. So some of the foods like ham and pork uh, weren't traditionally acceptable to Jews to eat. Um, and there's actually no problem with that. The problem is that he changes those behaviors and then he separates himself from the Gentiles as soon as these men show up. And it says, fearing the circumcision party. And I think that we can extend a little bit of grace to Peter and uh, assume that maybe he's trying to avoid a conflict and that maybe he's not intentionally trying to put down the Gentile Christians by, by separating himself. But, um, but by doing so, he's... By doing that and adhering to the Jewish customs, as though he always did that when around Gentiles, Peter has communicated, though perhaps unknowingly, that these Gentiles aren't really Christians unless they follow the Jewish customs like Peter and the other Jews do. Peter himself has already said verbally that Gentiles do not need to follow the law of Moses to be a follower of Christ. But his actions here say differently. Even Paul's friend Barnabas, who went with him to share about Christ with the Gentiles, he went along with this. Continuing in verse 14, we'll see how Paul responds to Peter. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step 
with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, this is, this is actually pretty bold of Paul. Here they all are, Paul, Barnabas, the, the Jews from, the men from James, the other Jewish Christians in Antioch, and then the Gentiles who are sitting separately. They're all sharing a meal together, and, and Paul, he stands up and he says, hey, yo, Peter, you're a Jew, right? Uh, yeah. But you've been living like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Oh, crap. I would actually kind of hate to be Peter in this situation. You haven't followed any of the Jewish customs until now, and you've been eating their, their unclean food. Why are you now pressuring them to live like a Jew when, when you don't even follow the customs yourself? Peter, he didn't even have to say anything for this message to come across. All, all he did was sit with the other Jews, and they separated the Gentiles. But, but what this communicated was this message that you're not good enough unless you keep the whole law. And that was heard loud and clear by the Gentiles. But what I also find interesting is that what Paul's addressing here, he's, he's not addressing hurt feelings about the Gentiles, or he's not worried about them being offended. Um, Paul addresses it for, for the issue that it actually is, that, that it's a matter of the gospel being compromised. Um, he says that this is not something that's in line with the gospel. The good news that Jesus lived the perfect life, fulfilling the law completely, and dying to pay the penalty for our sins in our place so that we could be acceptable to God without any additional requirements than, than just placing our faith in him. Paul here has, has been a Christian for about 14 years, and, and Peter even longer. He was one of Jesus' disciples. Um, yet, the issue that's raised goes back to the core of what being a follower of Jesus is all about. That, that faith in Christ is the only thing that saves us. So Peter and the other Jews are saying that by their actions, it's, it's not enough to have faith in Jesus. They're saying that their faith plus keeping the law is what makes them right before God. And adding that requirement of the law for salvation is exactly what takes away from the gospel. So Paul continues, verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So here it is again that our our right standing before God comes only through faith in Christ and not as a result of our works. They, as Jews, have believed that, and they no longer see their works as the key to eternal life. Verse 17, Paul raises an objection that the circumcision party would have likely responded with, and then he answers that for them. Their concern is that without rules to follow, people would descend into all kinds of lawlessness, that, that they would do whatever they want and that they would fall into all kinds of sin. And it's a reasonable concern, but, but Paul says that that's certainly not the case. By manufacturing your own way to God through the law or through your own morality and creating, creating these rules for yourself to follow, that actually, it makes them further away from God, not closer. 
Paul would argue that growth as a Christian doesn't come from the rules or disciplines that we place on ourselves from the outside, that it comes from understanding God's grace for us in Christ. And then that growth originates from the inside. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live, oh, lost my spot. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here, Paul says that he has died to the law. So what does that mean? If he were to live to the law, he would be aiming to justify himself by its standard. But instead, Paul says that he is dead to it. The standard of the law doesn't apply to him anymore. The old Paul, the Pharisee, the man who hunted and persecuted and killed Christians, he says that he was crucified with Christ. He died with Christ so that he could live by a new standard, the standard of grace where Jesus takes Paul's sin and dies for it, and then he credits Paul with his righteous record. Now Paul goes on to describe this new life that he now lives. He says, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So let me clarify what he's not saying. He's not saying that that now that he's a Christian, he just sits back in his recliner and and Jesus does all of this growth for him. He's also not saying that, that what Paul does and what Jesus does are separate things, but he says that Christ lives in him, that they are united. So I've only been married for a couple of weeks now, but I think that that my union with Hannah has helped me to better understand my union with Christ. By nature, um, I'm more of a spender, um, and Hannah's more of a saver. Um, But yeah, even before we were married, I still had a budget, and that helped me to somewhat rein in my spending. But largely, I could do what I wanted because my spending only affected me. Well, now that we're married, when, when I spend money, we spend money. Um, so my life isn't just mine anymore, it's hers. And that's not just in the area of finances, but, but in a lot of other areas as well. Um, when I live just for myself and do the things that I want to do, I'm acting as if we're not united. So in terms of our union with Christ, the things that I do, Christ does. The things that the, the things that Christ does, well, well, now I do those too. The things that Jesus lives for, those are the things that I now live for, if I'm united to him. So our union with Christ changes what we live for. Paul says that as a Christian, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm going to say that again. He, he loved me and gave himself for me. All past tense. And that's really interesting because I, I think a lot of times we, we tend to talk about Christ's love for us in the present tense. And while that's still true, I think it's really significant that he points to the past tense. He's not at all implying that, that Jesus' love in the present is non-existent, but he's pointing to a specific event. He's pointing to Christ's past tense love that drove him to the cross. It's that love that we as Christians 2,000 years later can point back and say, he loved me. That 
this is how I know I'm right with God, is because Jesus paid for my sins there. He loved me then. When I rely on the things that I'm doing to get me closer to God, I'm saying that Christ's death isn't enough to save me. I'm saying that there was no purpose in Christ's death. And Paul says that in verse 21, if righteousness were available through the law, Christ died for no purpose. So if you can achieve right standing with God by your morality, you don't really need a savior that does it for you, do you? I've already mentioned that this week's mark is growth. And up to this point, we've, we've talked a lot about our right standing with God. And so a question that you might be wondering is, okay, so, so how does that apply to my growth in the Christian life? I think what Paul would argue here in Galatians is that the gospel or the good news of Christianity is not just our entry ticket into the Christian life, but it's also how we carry it out too. Pastor and author Tim Keller puts it this way, the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life, but the A to Z. That it's not just the start, but it's the whole thing. Since this is our last weekly gathering this semester, um, I would really love to leave you guys with some practical steps that you can take with you into winter break. Um, I'll have three different ways that you can apply what Paul is teaching in Galatians, and each of these three things can be, can be done whether you are a Christian or not. First, examine yourself. Um, reading Galatians, we see a letter from Paul's early ministry, but I want to take a look for a second at something that Paul says at the end of his life in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, so if you'd like to follow along in the Blue Bibles, I'll be on page 576. Um, and I'll give you guys a second to turn there. So we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul, at the end of his life, is teaching the same thing that he does in his letter to the Galatians. He says here that Jesus came to save sinners, and I'm the worst one. All of the sinners out there, I'm their chief. Paul hits on something really important, and he's modeled it himself. That when we realize that what we deserve for our actions is eternal spiritual death, and that Jesus instead offers up us a new life united to him, based on, on his merits alone and nothing that we can add to it, that melts away our pride and our self-made righteousness from the inside, and it's instead replaced with humility and gratitude. So what do I mean then by examine yourself? Um, what I mean is this. Take a good look at your own heart and look for the ways that you try and manufacture your own standard of approval. Do you look to your friends and family to do that for you? Do you look for it through your self-expression? Are you defining it by your church attendance, your, um, how consistently you read your Bible, or how devoutly you pray? What are the things that you really want out of life? Examining those kinds of things. Personally, one, one thing that's been really helpful for me in reflecting on those things is journaling. Um, 
just putting my thoughts down on paper, writing down the things that I'm thinking, what I'm processing. What I've noticed is that once these things that I believe in my heart are down on paper, it's easier to kind of like take a step back and look honestly at them. Um, and it, once it's down on paper, I can see where, where they don't line up with scripture or maybe where I'm not trusting in the gospel like Peter and the other Jews were in Galatians, in Galatians 2. But however you reflect, a question to think about is this. Can you honestly say what Paul says in 1 Timothy? That I'm the worst sinner and Jesus showed mercy to me. Our second application, read the Bible. Um, it's difficult to trust in someone you don't know a lot about. A few weeks ago, and I'm probably going to butcher this story, Aspen, I'm sorry, but uh, Aspen shared a story about her faith in her dad, that he could pull a quarter through his ears. Um, and her faith in him wasn't based on the, that she knew exactly how he did it, but her faith in him was based on his character, his trustworthiness. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I would encourage you to start reading through the Bible um, because that's a really great way to get to know God's character um, and to determine if he is trustworthy. And that's, that's not something that needs to wait until January 1st, until New Year's. Um, but if that's something that, that you feel it needs to change in your life, why not? That could start tonight. For that passage in 1 Timothy to be true of Paul, I think that throughout his life, he returned again and again to what he's telling Peter and the other Jews in Galatians 2, that it's Jesus who saves me. I can't do that myself. And as you read the Bible, I want to encourage you to look for that message, that, that Jesus came to save sinners, and I am foremost. So where do you start? If, if you've never read the Bible before, start with one of the gospel accounts. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Um, and start reading through, through it there. The reason that I recommend those is because these contain things that Jesus said and did when he actually walked this earth. So it's a really great way to get to know Jesus' character and who he is. And if knowing yourself, you know that it's going to be hard for you to commit to reading the Bible, ask some friends or people from your community group to join you or to help you. And that kind of leads us into our third application, that talk about Jesus with others. And this can mean both talking about Jesus with other Christians, but it also means talking about Jesus with those who wouldn't call themselves Christians. So first, we'll talk about conversations about Jesus with other Christians. We were designed for community and relationship. Our culture says that we make our own success, we do things ourselves, and we, and we forge our own path. I think that Paul would have similar words to us, um, similar words to what he shared in Galatians 2 um, about how that is contrary to the gospel as well. We don't enter the Christian life by our own effort. So why should we try to complete it by our own effort too? Um, neither Jesus nor the apostle Paul traveled alone. They, they almost always had friends with them in their journeys. So my encouragement is to be intentional about meaningful Christian community over winter break. If you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, grab someone who is a Christian and process what you're learning with them. I'm sure that they would really love to walk alongside you as you learn about Christ. The other side of this application is more outward. A lot of you 
I think would say that you've experienced a lot of growth this semester. And some of you have trusted Christ for the first time within just the last few months. How incredible would it be if God could use you to have conversations with your friends or family as you go home to winter break um, to introduce them to Jesus too? Christ loved you before you loved him. And if he can change your heart, I think that he can change theirs too. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that by faith, we get to be united to you. Thank you for your perfect life that is credited to us. I pray that we would more and more internalize the truth that we can't add anything to what you've done and that we would continually receive your grace every day and that we would let you change our hearts from the inside out. I pray for these students as they head into winter break um, and finish up finals that they would desire to know you more, that they would see themselves as united to you, Jesus, and pray that you would align their desires with yours. So in your name, I pray.